Well, good morning. It's good to see you here this morning. And we are jumping back into our series this morning called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, which is a verse-by-verse chronological walk through the life and earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ using all four Gospels. In other words, this is a a harmonization of the Gospels. And um, our main focus of this series, when we started it quite a while back, was that we would see Christ more fully and thereby worship Him more rightly. And so I want you to open up your Bibles this morning to the next passage that's in our chronological walk, which is Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And as you're finding that text, let me ask the kids in here, because I know we have so many smart kids that have been educated so well, and perhaps you've taken like a class like physiology or anatomy. What is kids, what is a tendon or a ligament? What, what are those things? Tendons and ligaments. What do those do? They move your muscles. Well, they don't actually move your muscles, but they're important in order for your muscles to move correctly, right? Okay, the tendons and, and ligaments are these things that, that really, they, they, they kind of join everything together. They help piece things together. We think of our bones as important as our muscles as important, but the, but the tendons and, and ligaments are important. So I got, a, I got a picture here this morning. The ligaments are what connects bone to bone. So these little fibrous tissues that connect, keep bones connected together. But then very important are the tendons as well. They connect the muscle to the bone. Okay, so these are important connectors. And, and I, I've discovered something as I've gotten older I'm aware of how important tendons and ligaments are a lot more now than I was when I was as young as some of the kids in this room or some of the guys on the front row here, okay? Uh, I didn't worry about those little connecting things until I got older. And last time I played, tried to play soccer, I I discovered pretty quickly that those little things that are supposed to keep things connected, they, they tear a lot more quickly now. And... I can't walk, and the muscles don't do what they're supposed to do. So these little connectors are vitally important. I've discovered that. Uh, We may not think much about them, but they're huge to the way our body functions and to be able to move correctly. Well, I I say all that to say that this text today that we're in is kind of like a tendon text or a ligament text. It's a connector. Uh, In today's text, we we don't see Jesus involved in any, any memorable event. We don't see Jesus teaching any specific doctrine or performing any, any specific miracle or, or telling a specific parable. Instead, this is one of those passages that's necessary to any good story, to any good narrative. It's one of those transitional or summary portions of the Scripture that sort of holds it all together. So this is a, a tendon in Luke's story of the life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. And like a tendon, it's very important. So we best not think that God has nothing to teach us in little passages like this one. Sometimes we sort of just skip over these type of passages and want to get to the more exciting things. And I want us to, as we go through this verse-by-verse series, I want us to take that seriously. Do it verse-by-verse and see what it is the Lord wants us to learn from these first three verses of the 8th chapter of Luke. Now, the immediate context of this passage, if you'll remember from our last sermon in the series, Jesus had been invited to the the house of a Pharisee named Simon. And if you'll remember, there was a woman, a sinful woman, who probably she was a prostitute, who came into the house, much to the shock and awe of everyone there. And she, she comes up to Jesus, begins to weep over his feet and wets his feet with her tears and wipes his feet with her hair and then, then breaks a flask of ointment 
um, very expensive ointment on Jesus' feet and anoints his feet with this costly oil. And what we saw in that passage was that we should be like this woman. We should see, if we're true worshipers of Jesus, we should, we should have unfeigned brokenness like that woman had. We should have unreserved affection and we should have uninhibited generosity. And that passage, by God's providence and God's providence alone, served as a great jumping off point as we've jumped into a series, a short series on financial stewardship from 2 Corinthians 8. But now we pick it back up immediately after this incident at Simon's house. We come to today's text where Luke is transitioning his narrative to the third and final Galilean phase of Jesus' ministry. So this is an important transitional text. So please stand up if you would. We stand here at Harbin's as we read our passage that we're preaching on. We stand in the honor of the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 8 beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Soon afterward... He went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Kutza, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would add your blessing now to the reading of this word, this infallible, inerrant word that you have given to us. Lord, give me a mouth to speak it correctly, to teach it correctly, to preach it rightly, and give us all ears to hear. We ask, Lord, that you'd keep us from any error, protect us from man's speculation, and let us see what you have to teach us in this text. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, please be seated. Now, there's only two major observations that I want to make from today's text. Uh, Number one, I want us to notice the the narrowness of Jesus' ministry. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a little bit. And then secondly, I want us to notice the broadness of Jesus' ministry. And I'll explain how Jesus' ministry is both narrow and broad as we go through the text this morning. So the first thing I want us to see is simply the focused narrowness of Jesus' ministry. The focused narrowness of Jesus' ministry. Verse 1 says, Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the first thing I simply want us to see is the focused narrowness of Jesus' ministry map, meaning where he did his ministry. The focused narrowness of Jesus' ministry map. First, I simply want to remind us how intentionally limited the geographical scope of Jesus' earthly ministry was. The the geographical range of Jesus' ministry was surprisingly small. And in the geographical location where Jesus chose to do the bulk of his ministry, it just so happened to be an area of Israel that was even very unimpressive. Remember, his, his ministry center or the hub of his ministry is in Galilee. And this wasn't the cultural nor the theological nor the intellectual center of the Jewish people. This was not where the elites gathered. This was not where the teachers who wanted to make a name for themselves ministered. Galilee was considered the backwoods. It was even looked down upon by those who lived in Judea. Do you remember Nathaniel's words about Jesus when word was brought to him that the Messiah had been found? And Nathaniel said this in John chapter 1, verse 46. He says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
And that was the sentiment about Galilee in general. Nothing good can go on up in Galilee. But the Father chose to make Galilee the home base of his rescue mission for mankind. It was God's design to send his son to be born amidst and to operate within the lowest of the low. But not only was the location obscure, Jesus' travel itinerary, his plans seemed to be pretty unimpressive as well. The text today says that Jesus went on through cities and villages. Now the verb here, went on, uh, it, it's a verb that doesn't seem to indicate that there was any sort of plan. It, it doesn't mean a planned journey from one location to the next. The verb went on simply carries the idea of wandering. It seems that Jesus is just wandering. That's perhaps how his itinerary looked to the human eye, that he's just, just wandering. I think men in here can understand. We, we, we understand this word, to wander, right? Because we don't want to get the directions how to get from here to here. We'd rather just wander and figure it out on our own. Now, I don't think Jesus was doing that, obviously. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Matter of fact, he had an exact purpose and plan that God had given him, the Father had given him. Here is this man, though, who has done mighty works, but his itinerary, at least in the eyes of man, seems to be aimless. He's just traveling from one town to the next. And he's traveling from unimpressive town to unimpressive town. It was directed by the Father, though. This is exactly what God wanted of Jesus. Jesus says in John six thirty eight, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And it was the will of the Father to have the gospel preached in small towns to insignificant people. This was God's itinerary. This was God's timetable. This was God's travel plan. And it was designed to turn the world upside down. It always... It always has been amazing to me when you think about Jesus and the fact that he never traveled more than about 200 miles from where he was born. He never traveled more than about 200 miles from where he was born. And he ministered mostly in little towns and little villages and not in the big cities. Now we do see him coming into Jerusalem, which is the, the big city. But for the bulk of his ministry, Jesus spent it in small towns. Contrast that to Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, in his lifetime, traveled 360,000 miles. Uh, he conquered many, many uh, territories and renamed 70 major cities. He renamed them how he wanted to be named. A lot of them he named after himself. And this was Alexander the Great. And I think if man had written a script of how they would have penned the part of the Messiah, they would have, they would have written it more like Alexander the Great. Matter of fact, I think that's why so many missed the true Messiah. They missed Jesus, meek and mild, the humble God-man who walked the unbeaten paths of little towns in Galilee who quietly went from one town to another, quietly conquering one heart at a time for the kingdom of God. I wonder if Jesus' ministry would even be recognized in our celebrity church culture of today. Would he have a blog, a podcast? Would he be invited to speak at the mega conferences, at the mega churches? I, for one, am glad that God still works in powerful ways in small places with insignificant people. I'm not saying anything about you guys. (laughs) I'm glad God still works in the places that we won't know about until we get to heaven. 
So many of the towns and cities that Jesus went to were unnamed. And that's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel knows no celebrity. The gospel message is available for all. So there's the focused narrowness of Jesus' ministry map. And the second thing I want to see is the the focused narrowness of Jesus' ministry methods. It says that he went proclaiming and bringing the good news. The word proclaiming here is the word translated in the New Testament and other places as preaching. It's keruso. It's closely related to the other word for preaching in the New Testament, kerygma. It simply means to publish or to herald, to make known publicly. This was Jesus' main method of ministry. This was his main purpose of ministry. Jesus did plenty of other things. He, he healed the sick. He cared for the socially outcast. He demonstrated justice and mercy. But those were always secondary to the preaching of the gospel. They were the byproduct, not the prime product. The main focus of Jesus' earthly ministry was preaching. And people today try to minimize this truth and thereby reduce Jesus' earthly ministry to social justice or a community organizer. But that was not Jesus' main aim. Luke 4, verse 43 says this. He said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. I was sent for this purpose to preach in little towns. And later when he's being tried by Pilate, Jesus states again the purpose for which he had come. He says this in John chapter 18. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. He was proclaiming, he was bearing witness to the truth as he went from town to town. That's what Jesus was doing, preaching and proclaiming. But specifically, the Bible says he was proclaiming and bringing the good news. Now, those four words in our translation, bringing the good news, are actually only one word in the Greek. Okay, Euangelizo is the word in the Greek, which is simply the verbal form of the word uh, Yonghelion, which is the word for the evangel, the good news. So what Jesus was doing is, this, if we want to transliterate this, he was evangelizing. That's what he was doing. He was simply evangelizing or gospelizing. He was taking the good news from one village to the next. And that takes me to our third point regarding the focus of Jesus' ministry. We need a, the focused narrowness of Jesus' ministry message. The focused narrowness of Jesus' ministry Message. He's proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. In other words, his focus was the gospel. He didn't preach the power of positive thinking. He didn't preach social justice. He didn't preach revolutionary politics. He preached the gospel, the good news. The only way a man's mind can be changed isn't through positive thinking. It's through the gospel. The only way the world can be changed socially isn't through a bunch of new programs. It's through the gospel. The gospel is what Jesus preached. But I think it makes some people wonder, well, what gospel was Jesus preaching? For he, as of yet, has not gone to the cross. So was the gospel that Jesus preached the same gospel that, say, the apostle Paul preached? Well, the answer, friends, must be a resounding yes. Yes. There is only one gospel. There are some that think that Jesus taught what's called here the gospel of the kingdom, and that that's a different type of gospel than what Paul taught. I read an article this week that that taught that Jesus proclaimed a different gospel than Paul taught. 
that Jesus taught the gospel of the kingdom of God to Israel. Meanwhile, Paul preached the gospel of the kingdom of heaven to the Gentiles. Let me just say, I think that's absolute silliness. Absolute foolishness. Galatians 1.6 says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Now regarding the difference, and and we may talk about this some in our hermeneutics class here in a couple of weeks. uh, Regarding the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, I've argued before in in the preaching through the gospels that they are synonymous in the gospels. And let me demonstrate that by going to Matthew 19. And also in that same text in Matthew 19, I would like to show us that, that the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom that, that Jesus was proclaiming is the same gospel that Paul proclaims is the gospel of salvation, the need for man to be saved. So in Matthew 19, verse 23, after the rich young ruler, you remember the passage, the rich young ruler, he comes and he asks Jesus what he needs to do in order to inherit eternal life, to be in the kingdom. And the, Jesus tells him to, well, first of all, he's, he thinks he's very self-righteous. He thinks he's obeyed all the, all the law, all the commands. And Jesus tells him to go and sell everything he has and follow me. Go sell everything you have and follow me. And, of course, the man leaves dejected. He, he can't submit to Jesus' radical demands because he worships himself instead of Christ. And so he walks away. And then Jesus says to his disciples in, Luke, in, I'm sorry, in Matthew 19, verse 23, Truly I say to you, Only with difficulty will a rich man enter the kingdom of heaven. Heaven. Now in the next verse, verse 24. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of God. Do we see here that in that very text there, verses 23 to 24, we have kingdom of heaven kingdom of God being used synonymously. So they're not two different things. Matter of fact, if we understand Jewish parallelism, Jesus is saying the same thing twice. So first we see the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven are synonymous. Jesus himself makes that case. But also I want us to see that the disciples understood that being in the kingdom meant being saved, being redeemed, being saved from the wrath of God, being saved from their sins. Because this is what we read here and let me back up just a little bit where Jesus says, is it, easy, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? They don't say, who then can enter the kingdom of heaven or God or whatever you mean, Jesus. They, they know what he means. Who then can be saved? Of course, Jesus responds. He looks at them and said, With man, that is impossible. This is impossible. With God, all things are possible. The disciples understood that the good news of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, was the good news about salvation from sin and from the coming wrath of God. They knew that man needed salvation, and they knew that the only way to be saved was to to be under the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ. To be under the rule and the reign and the protection, the covering of Jesus Christ the King. Now, did they understand the full implications of the gospel? Not at this point, no. They didn't. They didn't. They probably didn't understand the full understanding of what it meant to be united to Christ. To be actually in him. But 
they knew that Jesus kept raising the bar so high for salvation that they were left incredulous. Are you kidding me, Jesus? Who can be saved? Which leads Jesus to respond with this radical, God-centered, sovereign, monergistic word. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The gospel proclaims that man has no chance to get into the kingdom. Man has no hope of salvation within himself. Instead, he must look to God in faith. He must cast himself upon the Messiah. For only in God's power and by God's grace can man be saved. There's only always been one gospel. Galatians 4.4 says there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But I also want to give some other texts this morning that demonstrate that there is one gospel, that the gospel Jesus proclaimed, the one gospel he proclaimed is the same one gospel the Apostle Paul proclaimed. First, Jesus taught In his gospel, that we are to pursue an alien righteousness. We see it in Matthew 6, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We need to seek a righteousness outside of our own. Jesus' gospel taught atonement of sins. Matthew 10, verse 45. "For, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' gospel taught that his blood was the only means to propitiate God's wrath and experience forgiveness. Matthew 26, 28, at the institution of the Lord's Supper, he says this, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus' gospel taught substitutionary atonement. Substitution. Luke twenty two thirty seven. 37. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And what scripture is he about to quote? Isaiah 53, 17, suffering servant passage. And here's what he says. And he was numbered with the transgressors. He stood in our place. He was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus' gospel was the same as Paul's gospel. Jesus' gospel taught that justification comes not by works, but by faith alone. In Luke chapter 18, verse 9, Jesus taught a parable. It says he taught this parable to some, listen to this, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So he's teaching a gospel. He's teaching a parable, I should say, trying to get people to remove their trust from themselves. People who are trusting in themselves and their own righteousness and get them to place their trust, their faith, somewhere else. So reading on in Luke chapter 18, here's the parable Jesus told. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Verse 14 says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Now there's more we could go to in the Gospels, but that'll do for now. Surely, as I said, the full implications of the Gospel weren't fully understood by Jesus' disciples until he died and rose again. But that doesn't mean that Jesus didn't preach the full Gospel. It simply means that Jesus' disciples weren't able to fully perceive the scope and the extent of the Gospel Until he rose again. So in these first words of this text today, we see a focused narrowness 
of Jesus' ministry. The Father focused him, narrowed where he was at. Jesus' methods were narrowed to the preaching of the gospel. And, of course, the message was the gospel. The next thing I want us to see, though, is the merciful broadness of Jesus' ministry. The merciful broadness of Jesus' ministry. Because the gospel message he preached was the gospel of mercy. And we see this in the people that were accompanying Jesus. Now, we're not at all surprised to see the 12 there. They're with Jesus. It says, and the 12 were with him. But then verse 2 says, and also some women. And also some women. And the first thing I want us to see is that Jesus' merciful broadness of his ministry topples systemic prejudices. The merciful broadness of the gospel topples systemic prejudices. The prevailing rabbinic view of women in Jesus' day was that they were not able to be taught. They were not capable of spiritual instruction. There were even some laws on the books that prohibited men from teaching women in public. Even the ancient secular philosophers were the same way. Socrates and Aristotle both thought it was degrading to have a woman as a pupil or a follower. One rabbi even said this, Let the words of Torah be burned rather than they should be taught to a woman. So the rabbis of first century Judaism, they would have gladly accepted a woman's financial contributions, but they would have in no way allowed her to be a disciple. They would in no way have taught her or allowed her to follow them around. So what we see here in Jesus' ministry is absolutely revolutionary. Absolutely revolutionary. Jesus rocked the deeply embedded systemic prejudices of his day. And he did it by allowing these women to be his followers and to learn from him. Jesus resisted the culture. Jesus resisted the sinful fallen culture he was in, a culture that was suppressing women, which is the fruit of the Genesis 3.16 curse, by the way. And he resisted that culture. However, our sinful fallen culture tries to eliminate all distinctions and roles between men and women, which is also the fruit of the Genesis 3.16 curse. Matter of fact, you could even say the very concept of gender is under attack in our age. So we, like Jesus, must resist the culture all the while proclaiming the transforming and liberating power of the gospel, a gospel that topples systemic prejudices. But more than Jesus simply allowing women to follow him and to serve him, the Gospels present a picture of of Jesus' female followers as women who were remarkably strong and remarkably faithful. We have Mary, the mother of Jesus, whose faith is contrasted to who in in the Gospel of Luke? Her faith is contrasted to Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, who didn't believe what the angel told him. And then we have Elizabeth, who prophesied about the Messiah when she saw Mary come Meanwhile, old Zechariah is sitting there mute because of his unbelief. We have the sinful woman in the prior passage that we looked at here in Luke. Um, And we also later have Mary of Bethany who anoint Jesus' feet with expensive oil while the onlooking men are unmoved by the whole incident. Matter of fact, a little annoyed and perturbed. It was also the women in, in, in Matthew 27, Mark 15, John 19 who stood by Jesus at the cross while most of the twelve fled. It was the women in all the gospel accounts who went to the tomb early Sunday morning, despite the fact that there were soldiers there, went to the tomb early Sunday morning while the twelve hid. It was the women who were given the great honor of first witnessing the risen Savior. And it was the women who believed while so many, including the twelve, doubted, some doubting until they could put their fingers on the very wounds of Jesus. 
And so we are in no way surprised to see that in those first days of the, the New Testament church in Acts 1.14, that there's women included with all the men as they're praying, awaiting the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And time doesn't allow us to talk of all the other great women in the New Testament, like Anna, Phoebe, Priscilla. Jesus' ministry had a broadness about it that toppled the systemic prejudices of the age Jesus lived in. And that's because the gospel topples the systemic prejudices of every age. The gospel is the only solution for our racial prejudices, our social prejudices, our economic prejudices. Uh, I was surprised this week, and I, I greatly admire and like the Gospel Coalition. If you're not familiar with that ministry, it's a coalition of, of people who are united for the sake of the gospel. And they have a conference, I think, every year. And I was a bit surprised that their, well, their focus is on racial reconciliation, which is a great focus this year for their conference. But I was surprised that they're having a, a meeting about racial reconciliation. And this is a clearly gospel-centered Christian organization. And on the panel, there's more unbelievers than there are believers on this panel. And I was shocked, and we're getting a lot of pushback for it. And here's my, my issue. It's not that people can't contribute thoughts about how we can experience racial reconciliation in this country. People who aren't believers can give us good ideas. But I tell you what, the only solution to reconcile the races is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel coalition. Come on. The church has to focus on the gospel. It is the solution for all the reconciliation that's needed in our broken world. The gospel tears down the walls, broadens the appeal, calls on all men and all women of all races, of all walks of life to come. Come be united to Jesus and in him become one new man, one new race, one new people of God. So that as Revelation teaches us, we will all one day stand together singing a song as we worship the Lamb. And this is part of the song we'll sing, that you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. Amen. This is a wide, broad, comprehensive gospel, and it's glorious. And that's what the gospel coalition needs to be preaching at their conference. But do not misunderstand or misrepresent this broadness. For that broadness takes sinners of all stripes but it does not leave them in their sin it transforms them into new creatures into holy people you see it's a broadness that the next point here is simply this it's a it's a merciful broadness that transforms hopeless sinners the text goes on to say some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities were there mary called magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out now listen to mary's condition there's all these different women apparently have experienced some sort of either healing or exorcism from Jesus. Um, and listen to Mary's condition. She has seven, she had seven demons. That's a pretty terrible condition to be in. Now, you know the number seven in the scriptures means fullness or completion. So perhaps the fact that she had that many demons demonstrates how overly overtaken she was by sin and by Satan. This was an utterly devastating and hopeless situation that Mary must have been in. But that demonstrates the breadth of the gospel, the broadness of the gospel. It reaches down and snatches the worst of the worst out of the clutches of Satan. And quite frankly, the Bible paints a terrible and hopeless picture for all of mankind. You don't have to have seven demons to be in a pretty bad situation. You just have to be born. The Bible says in Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately sick. People don't need to be possessed by seven evil spirits to be found in desperation. 
and in a hopeless situation because we are born completely depraved. Romans 3 verse 10 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That text is referring to all people, Jews and Greeks alike. All of us have turned aside. Part of the reason we're doing our study on, in our community groups that we're doing right now is to drive home this point. And some of you might be thinking, boy, he's driving it too much every week. Come on. Boom, 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 boom. Depravity, depravity, depravity. Guys, I want us to see how terrible the condition of man is. Because only then will we worship how glorious his salvation is. The degree to which we understand the depravity of man is the degree to which we will give God glory for salvation. And that's why we're doing that study. And that's what we see here with Mary Magdalene. The state of all men and all women is a state of desperation and hopelessness until the gospel breaks in and transforms. I love the Apostle Paul's testimony about the power of the gospel in 1 Timothy 1 verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And so as Paul thinks about that, he's, he's writing these words to Timothy, or someone's writing them down as he's, he's dictating them, as he thinks about that. In verse 17, that causes him to break into doxology. Verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me ask you this. When you think about who you were prior to Christ, and you think about the condition you were in without Christ, what your destiny was without Christ, does it cause you to break into doxology? If not, you may not understand your depravity. So hopefully, community groups leads to doxology. If we understand our depravity, and if we understand the broadness of the gospel, which reaches sinners like us, then we should break out into praise. If you're here this morning and you're thinking, oh, I'm, I'm too much of a sinner to be saved. As one person said to me, who I tried to get to come visit the church, and said, the moment I walk in that church, lightning will strike me dead. If you're here this morning and that's your thought, I'm too much of a sinner to be saved, then I ask you this, do you really think your sin is more powerful than God? Are you so bold and so arrogant to make that claim? Do you really think that God is so limited and that his gospel is so weak? Do not mock God with your false humility. Repent and turn to God and he will save you. So Mary was a sinful, demon-possessed woman and she became one of Jesus' most loyal followers. The gospel was broad enough to include her. And along with Mary, there were some other women. One of those was a woman named Joanna. And the next thing I want us to see is the merciful broadness that transcends profound differences. The beauty of the people of God is the diversity of the people of God. I love the differences on display in this room, but on display in the body of Christ in general around the world. I think one of the reasons Jesus mentions all these women by name is in part to show the differences between each one of them. Uh, Luke mentions these women by name. And to highlight the diversity of Jesus' followers. So let's look at Joanna. She was the wife of Kutza, Herod's household manager. Now we don't know much about Mary's social status in Galilee. But this portion of the text makes it very clear that Joanna was a woman 
from the upper shelf of society. As I said, she was the wife of Kutza, and it says that he was the household manager. That means he was the procurator or the administrator of Herod's house. Every other servant in Herod's castle would have answered to him. This position would have been similar to, to Joseph's position in Potiphar's house. It would have been a position that required much trust from, from Herod himself. That means that Joanna was married to a powerful man. That means that she also would have come from a life of relative luxury and ease compared to most. But she chose to follow Jesus, a man who was increasingly getting on the wrong side of both the Jewish nobility as well as the religious elite. But she would remain faithful even after Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, crucified our Lord Jesus. Joanna was there to the very end. We read in Luke chapter 24. And some of the women went to the tomb, and that's when they found it empty, and they encountered the the angels declaring that Jesus was indeed alive. We read in verse 10, it tells us that it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. So there's Joanna, who had safety in Herod's castle, risking it all by going to the tomb while many others hid away. Joanna is a testimony to the broadness of the gospel's reach. For though she was one of the rich, one of those for whom it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than to be saved, yet here she stood as a testimony to the truth that anything was possible with God. And then there's another name, Susanna. And because we have no description of Susanna nor any other information about her in the gospels, we can assume that she wasn't very well known, not as well known as Mary. Perhaps her conversion wasn't as spectacular. She probably wasn't as well-to-do as Joanna. We can only speculate that, that she was probably just an average citizen from the average masses of Israelites who normally lived in poor conditions. There wasn't much of a middle class back then. And then to drive home the point of how diverse and numerous this group of women was, Luke tells us there were many others. There seemed to be a wide diversity of women rescued from a wide diversity of sin and suffering from a wide diversity of backgrounds and social statuses. All because of the broadness of the gospel's reach. Because Romans 10, 13 says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The gospel transcends our differences and makes us one in Christ. Galatians three twenty seven. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ. And one last note about these women. The scriptures tell us that these women provided for them out of their means. Now the gender of the word here, who, and the verb provided is female, meaning that it attaches the action of the providing with the means, it attaches that to the women. So it wasn't that the twelve were providing for the means, it was the women. They were the ones providing for Jesus' ministry. The word provided here is probably better translated served. It's the word, um, it's diakoneo, which is the verbal form of the word deacon. No wonder these women are so exalted in the gospel. For Jesus said in Matthew 9, 35, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. The twelve got in frequent arguments. You know this. The twelve got in frequent arguments about who among them was the greatest. While behind the scenes, these women quietly, faithfully, sacrificially served by carrying out tasks, meeting specific needs, and financially supporting the work. The text says here that they provided for the, out of their financial means for them, meaning Jesus and the twelve. Why? They did it so that Jesus and the twelve could focus on the ministry of preaching the good news from town to town. 
That's the model that's repeated in the New Testament. Jesus could have provided for his ministry supernaturally. The very first temptation upon Jesus, at least the first one recorded, is to change the stones into bread. And we know that Jesus would, would later feed the 5,000 and then more after that. We know that Jesus could have miraculously, supernaturally provided for the ministry, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't choose to work that way. He likes to work through the sacrificial giving of his people. These women are living out a very important principle that we touched on the last four weeks as we talked about financial stewardship. And that principle is this. The financial and material support for a ministry is designed by God to come from those who are impacted by that ministry. Let me just say that principle again. The financial and material support for a ministry is designed by God to come from those who are impacted by that ministry. Isn't that what Paul said in Galatians 6, 6? Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. And that's what these women were doing. It's exactly what these women were doing. But let me conclude this morning by asking us if we see how important this little tendon passage is. This little connecting passage. What are we to take from it? Well, first let me ask if we are as narrowly focused as Jesus was. No, we may not be as geographically limited as Jesus was. And surely we have been told to go to all nations. So in one sense, you can say that our ministry map isn't as narrow as Jesus's. But I think that would miss the point. The fact of the matter is, what Jesus was doing, he was obeying his Father's will and preaching and teaching wherever his Father wanted him to go. So to us, and we've pointed this out before, in Matthew chapter 28, in the Great Commission, in verse 19, it could be translated, not just go and make disciples of all nations, but as you go, as you go, make disciples of all nations. The point being, wherever God has placed you, wherever God moves you, wherever God calls you, wherever God has providentially arranged your itinerary to be, the question is, are you in that place proclaiming the good news? Wherever it might be. Or you're waiting for God to open up a door. When God wants you to stay in the room you're in and preach. Romans 10, 17 says this. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So the second question is, are we focused on the message the way Jesus was focused on the message? Faith comes from hearing through the word of Christ. Do we understand that the only news that can save is the good news of Jesus? Only the gospel will change lives. So everything we do personally and everything we do as a church must be anchored in the gospel. And that gospel is wide enough to knock down all the barriers in order to reach the most hopeless of sinners from any and every walk of life. So sinner this morning, I conclude with this word. I beg you to come. Come be a follower of Jesus Christ by repenting of your sins. And putting all your faith in him alone to save you by his grace alone. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your word. I praise you for little sections of the scripture like this one. that seem to be rather insignificant. And we begin to ponder it. We begin to think about it. We begin to, to meditate upon what you were doing and how you were doing it. And who was following you and why they were following you. And how they came to be your followers. God, it opens up doors for us to see you more clearly and to worship you more rightly. So God, I pray that you would be pleased with what we've brought this morning as, as we've sung and as we've prayed and as I've preached, Lord. And as I said earlier, if there be any error in anything I've said, Lord, strike it from our ears, strike it from our memory. But God, take what you want to take from the word today and produce fruit. Your word goes forth 
it always produces what it is intended to produce. And Lord, I pray for any in here who cannot name themselves among the followers of Jesus. I pray, Father, that you would do a work to soften their heart and give them ears to hear. And they would repent and turn from their sin today and put all their faith in Jesus Christ alone. I pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.